I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about the reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what is the author responding to? What are the tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Ariana Brown, a queer Black Mexican-American poet from the south side of San Antonio, Texas. She is the author of the poetry chapbook, Sauna Sauna, published by Game Over Books in 2020, and the debut full-length poetry collection, We Are Old, published by Grieveland in 2021. Ariana's work investigates queer Black personhood in Mexican-American spaces, Black relationality and girlhood, loneliness and care, She holds a BA in Mexican-American Studies and African Diaspora Studies from UT Austin, an MFA in Poetry from the University of Pittsburgh, and an MLS in Library and Information Science from the University of North Texas. Ariana is a 2014 National Collegiate Poetry Slam champion and owes much of her practice to Black performance communities led by Black women poets from the South. She has been writing, performing, and teaching poetry for more than 10 years. Lesson plans... Spanish translations of her poems and other resources are available on her website at arianabrown.com. So I'm really interested in how you write and analyze borders, spaces, origin stories, and relationality, all of which are connected to your Black and Mexican identities. And your poems are about growing up in Texas, and you reference a formative trip to Mexico when you were a university student. I'm curious about how you created the collection. Did you write some of the poems in your MFA program? And how did you shape the overall collection to become We Are Old? Yeah, um, thank you for asking that. I started writing the initial draft of what would become We Are Old when I was an undergrad. Um, I was a um, Black Studies major. And so I was very interested in history. The things we were learning in the Black Studies classrooms felt really important to me. I didn't want the knowledge that I was gaining there to just stay with me and my classmates. I wanted to find some way to sort of share the things I was learning because I found a lot of the histories really fascinating. And so that's when I started to try to incorporate writing deeply about history into my work. And so I would say for maybe about the last two years of my undergrad time, um, I was working on the poems that became We Are Owed. And that's what I applied to my MFA program with, was a, a few poems from the draft of that manuscript that was probably about a third of the way done. And then once I got into the MFA program and just had time to write, where that was the main thing that I was supposed to be working toward, everyone who knows me knows that I'm very anti-MFA. I had a not great experience in my oh, MFA program. Okay. I don't recommend them. But it was helpful for me to have dedicated time to write and access to a university library because I did so much research for the book. My process ended up being a lot of studying as much as I could, gathering information that I felt like was somehow related, even if to someone else it might seem like these different things weren't related. Mm -hmm. Um, If I could see a connection, then I was just sort of making lots of lists of associative things that made sense to me based on you know, where I grew up in San Antonio or histories of anti-Blackness in in Mexico or in Mexican-American spaces, um, just trying to find little touch points. And I often said that it felt like when I opened one door, 10 more doors opened behind it. Uh And so 
I was really enjoying that that process of just trying to find links between things. And that's how a lot of the poems sort of organically came together when I just sort of followed those those threads. And I think of this question as a follow-up because mm-hmm. I, I want to ask specifically about your title mm-hmm. um, and how it connects to the very first poem in the collection. It's called At the End of the Borderlands. And the first line is very declarative. You write, we need new origins. And that line is followed by countries are killing everyone I love. And then the second poem, A Quick Story, it continues to exhibit your critique of borders. And in the end of that poem, you write, countries will kill everyone you love and everyone else too, foreign and domestic. What other origin stories could counteract the one propagated by the nation state, which I consider as the main theme that you're consistently critiquing and um, wondering about in the collection? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I say all the time that I'm very interested in origin stories, like mm-hmm. the things that we tell ourselves about who we are and where those ideas came from. Because if you study history, you know, that's the starting point for a lot of these sort of origin stories that we have as marginalized people. You know, I feel like there's this whole question of identity, right? Like, who am I? And I think when I started to lean into learning to critique um, my heritage country, which is not really something that I was taught in sort of ethnic Mm -hmm. studies programs here in the U.S. You know, I feel like there is such a focus on developing pride, right? And like a sense of of really deep allegiance with one's heritage country. But when I started to sort of study the archive of slavery, particularly in a Mexican and Latin American context, then it, it became really clear that I was going to have to contend with the anti-Blackness of the Mexican state, of the countries in Latin America who participated in the slave trade and the ongoing legacy of anti-Blackness that persists. So it was, it was sort of a moment of me asking myself, how do I want to negotiate my relationship and my sort of nostalgia for a heritage country, mm-hmm. um, knowing the violence that's required for it to exist in the first place mm-hmm. and, and for it to maintain itself? And so when I think about other origin stories, when I was studying the archive of slavery, I learned about a historical figure named Gaspar Yanga. There's several poems about him in the book. Mm -hmm. When I think about Yanga, for anyone who hasn't read it, it, Yanga was an African man captured and enslaved in Veracruz, Mexico. And he led one of the most successful slave rebellions in the Americas, ended up founding the first free African settlement in the Americas. Um, And he's a, a figure who's not really discussed or taught about at all. I mean, I have a degree in Mexican-American studies and I didn't learn his name until someone sent me a YouTube video about Mm -hmm. him. And so I think I look to to people like Yanga as an example of, of an alternative origin story. You know, a lot of times when we think about Mexican culture, people want to look to the Aztec empire, you know, or Mm -hmm. want to push toward this indigenous past. And I think that we have a lot to learn from Black people throughout history who have always been in tension with the nation state because of the structure of Mm -hmm. white supremacy and nations Mm -hmm. in general. I think we have a lot to learn about how they have navigated and negotiated their relationships with the state. And so when I think Mm -hmm. about other origin stories, I think Yanga and the founding of his settlement with the freed Maroons that he collaborated with and organized with against the state, I think that's an example of a great Mm -hmm. alternative origin story. Ariana, you said you grew up in San Antonio? Yes, San Antonio, and Texas. Are, are you are you still living there? I actually live in Houston, Texas now. Oh, so Houston, Texas. A few hours away. So, 
I'm very curious about what's going on in Texas. I was raised, born, and grew up in Arkansas, mm -hmm. so I consider, I guess we're kind of neighbors in yeah. some sense. But um, in the news, Texas has, you know, a lot of the anti-trans bill and a lot of the conservative how would you say legal mandates have been passed through? But mm -hmm. I also see a lot of black scholars who have accepted professorships in mm. all parts of, of uh, Texas. So mm -hmm. I wonder how, like, how do you make sense of that? Do you think like, so there's like yeah. conservative mandates and then there's a lot of black scholars who are trying to make a community in mm -hmm. the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. So do you see, do you find some sort of hope in that kind of? Tension. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have this conversation a lot with other folks who are born and raised in the South and, and stayed mm -hmm. in the South, mm -hmm. sort of talking about the way the U.S. South is perceived in other parts of the, the yeah, country, you know, that, mm -hmm. um, you know, but people have always been making lives for themselves and finding community in the mm -hmm. in oppressive circumstances, you know, there was something I saw, there's something that I think there's like a tweet that goes viral every few months. It talks about how, especially like poor Black people living in the South are um, mm -hmm. are sort of being held hostage by right-wing governments, you know? And so mm -hmm. the people that I live with and interact with and are a part of my community here are most of them actively organizing against mm -hmm. the right-wing governments of Texas, of Houston, um, mm -hmm. and doing what we can to take care of each other in the meantime. You know, I mm -hmm. will also say, though... The university doesn't advertise it. UT Austin actually has one of the largest Black Studies departments in the country. When I was a student there, they had, including Black Studies professors and all of their affiliated faculty who taught courses that were cross-listed, there were probably about 50 professors within that department, which I feel like is unheard of, you know? Right, yeah. But yeah, that's probably part of it too. Mm -hmm. So there's one particular poem that I found really poignant, and that was there are Gueros and then there is me. Mm -hmm. The narrator remembers being in first grade and Spanish is spoken. Someone whispers, let's play a game, and it's called My School So Mexican. So that's repeated, I think, three, four times, and then there's a, someone reacts to it saying, what is Mexican about the school? Mm -hmm. um, in the last iteration, the narrator reveals the principal told their mother their hair was outlandish. And that poem ends with, I'm the only one who looked like me. And some 27 pages later, another poem with the same title reveals similar topics of language, anti-Blackness, and accents. Because I'm really interested in the, in the aspect of language learning or how languages are kind of hierarchical, mm -hmm. I want to ask you about what, what you're trying to do and say about language in your poems. Yeah, I'm thinking about these these two poems in particular that have the same title, There Are Widows and There Is Me. I mean, in relationship to the the ideas sort of permeating the collection, um, I'm thinking through a lot of the really insidious, big and small ways that anti-Blackness shows up in Mexican or Mexican-American cultural spaces, even sometimes when we're not taught to recognize those things. Something that a lot of folks uh, who grew up speaking Spanish or who've been around Spanish know is that and I feel like this is particular to Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in general. They tend to refer to people based on how they look. The word huero means white boy or like white looking person. And sometimes it can even specifically mean a white person who has blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And it's very common that if there is a, a baby that's born in a family, if that baby is white looking, then 
Weddle becomes sort of like this term of endearment because the baby is so white. Um, mm-hmm. But there isn't that same relationship with the word negro or negra, which means mm-hmm. black boy or black girl or black person. Even in my family, I have an aunt um, that I don't actually know what her name is because everyone just calls her Tia Wera because she's she's white. And so that's considered mm-hmm. like this very desirable trait. And so that's how mm-hmm. you are then referred to. They do the same thing with sort of negative traits, but it doesn't have a positive connotation to it. I think that this example is really interesting because at the same time, right, like because the Mexican-Americans I grew up around are very clear in naming the, mm-hmm. the traits that they find desirable, sometimes in that same breath, you know, folks still want to identify as sort of brown and proud. And I find that tension to be really strange, right? Because they've sort of already named what their allegiance is, what their, mm-hmm. you know, expressed desire is, but then still sort of want to hold on to this idea of being a quote unquote brown person, even if they know that they themselves are not perceived in that way, that they're not racialized mm-hmm. in that way. And so me pointing to Weros, right? Because a lot of the Mexicans I grew up with are white or white looking. A lot of my cousins are actually. If you didn't hear them speak, if you didn't hear their like Spanglish accents or their Mexican accents, you would think they were just mm-hmm. a, an American white person. And so then the poems are sort of trying to set up that world for the viewer and then drop me, a visibly mm-hmm. Black person, into that space and, and sort mm-hmm. of make sense of that tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I always find the word white quite interesting because a lot of people seem to think that when I say white, I'm talking about race or something demeaning. And I think I'm trying to be more anthropological by saying, you know, there's a kind of a pattern in which you speak, in which you try to inhabit the spaces. And they just, they kind of try to shut me down. And I, I never mean for it to be negative, but people have have said that it sounds like a slur coming from me. And I wonder if that has been your experiences. I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're saying. Could you explain that a little bit yeah, more, yeah. what you mean? So um, I, let me contextualize that. So when I lived in Seattle, mm-hmm. this is before the big tech boom, mm-hmm. I had a lot of white colleagues and I'd say something like, you wouldn't understand because your background is white. And they took offense to this. They would say something like, you're the only person who uses the word white so much. No one else uses that term. And I'm like, well, I was in grad school. I didn't have the ver- the refined language skills to talk about mm-hmm. what we now call as structures of whiteness. Mm-hmm. I wonder in your spaces, what you were saying, like how whiteness is desirable, but mm-hmm. also other people want to make, make claims to a, a kind of, I guess, a minoritized mm-hmm. identity as well. Mm-hmm. If you were to use the word white, to talk about structures is that taken uh, unkindly by I others i see what you mean yes it is oh <laughs> people are very offended oh by that when when you sort of point out one of my closest friends um their name is um alan Pelaez lopez and they write and study and talk about this a lot um that understandings of race change throughout history geography time place space mm-hmm. all of those things right and so, you know, I understand as, as someone who studied Texas history in particular mm-hmm. while living in Texas and being from there, I understand that there have been many different historical periods where Mexicans and Mexican-Americans have been racialized and treated differently by the mm-hmm. law. However, something that remains consistent throughout that period 
throughout the history of Mexican-Americans in Texas is this desire to be treated like white people under the law. You know, mm-hmm. and there have been many examples of when Mexican-Americans have argued legally that they should be classified as white people. Mm-hmm. That's how schools got desegregated in Texas. And so me having all of this historical context, right, being very clear when I say the word white, understanding that that carries a certain kind of social power mm-hmm. um, and all of the things sort of associated with that, people tend to take it very offensively because I think they think that I'm trying to negate any experiences that they've had Mm -hmm. where they have been racialized differently. And that's not the case, right? The case is always to analyze one's relationship to whiteness, to white supremacy, because if Mm -hmm. one has an allegiance to white supremacy, then one has an investment in anti-Blackness. And that's where Mm -hmm. the tension comes from. I'm just shaking my head at the memories. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And keeping um, the topic on languages, Mm -hmm. I actually read your poems, many of them as language learning and mm-hmm. a lot of your experiences are expressed in both English and Spanish mm-hmm. and I think when you were t- describing your um, history studying history in the archives there seems to be you're trying to say something about genealogy and also critiquing what you learn and what wasn't taught in, mm-hmm. in these academic spaces as well mm-hmm. um, if the reader the listener would read your collection they'll see like your poetry collection begins with an epigraph Mm -hmm. featuring a quote from Alice Walker Mm -hmm. Um, and then the poetry breaks and you use other pages to either explain a reference or attribute other writers like Dion Brand Mm -hmm. Um, after the poem Borderland Sweet Nightmares you write I don't want to use Enzo Enzo Dua who I guess it would be if people don't know it's Gloria Mm -hmm. Enzo Dua you write I had a choice to erase the words that erased me already or make new ones are you writing against her scholarship in particular? And is this a reference to a new origin story that you want to create and sustain? Yeah, I'm writing. Well, I, I should say I haven't studied Andaldua's entire body of work, mm-hmm. um, but the the piece of scholarship that she created that I'm explicitly writing against is Borderlands, the Numesa, mm-hmm. which, you know, is widely taught. Cited, yeah. Um, widely taught, widely cited, widely hailed as this sort of revolutionary text, you know? Mm-hmm. And here's the thing is that if you talk to Black people from Latin America, a lot mm-hmm. of them will say that book is harmful. Mm-hmm. The ideas, and she's trying to lay claim to this like romanticized Indigenous past that she doesn't actually have a connection to, which is you know, (laughs) there's some problems with that. But this kind of goes to what I'm saying about wanting to lay claim to this idea of brownness, right? A particular Mm -hmm. kind of marginalized identity without interrogating and really thinking deeply about one's relationship to whiteness or one's conditional Mm -hmm. whiteness that Black Mm -hmm. people just do not have access to whatsoever. That book really, really dives deep into that and is based on an argument of eugenics that's part of a larger history in a Latin American context. The mm-hmm. book that Anzaldúa bases that entire argument on is literally a book of eugenics, but people don't want to look at that genealogy. I, and I really thought for a while when I was writing this book, I thought that I was going to do erasures of Borderlands because of how highly esteemed the book is. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to destroy it in a way and sort of like violently insert myself into the erasures. And I tried I read that book cover to cover. I marked it up. I tried to figure out how to make something of it that would fit inside this collection. And Mm -hmm. I kept having trouble. I couldn't figure out 
how to make the text say the things that I wanted it to say, that I needed it to say. And I came to a point where I felt like, actually, I think this book has said enough. And I don't think I want to replicate any of the things that are in it. I don't want to share it. I don't want to circulate it, which is also why I don't name Gloria like her first name. I just oh, say right. Anza Dua. So that if you know, if yeah. you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about, then you know, you, you yeah. know. But if you don't, yeah. she's not uh-huh. listed in the in the selected reading list at the right. end. Right. You know? I know. I know. <laughs> I was sort of like, I think it's actually more important that I that I am the one making the argument. That it's right. my language that's going to be here. Mm-hmm. I think what you were saying earlier, how sometimes our discourse keeps circulating, maybe more so on Twitter than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I find that um, the book that you're critiquing, a lot of people have said that's actually a harmful monograph. Mm-hmm. The critique is there in the world, but um, mm-hmm. like you said, it's it's still widely cited even in today's yeah. kind of and literary I, reckoning. Yeah, I'm very grateful for people who are willing to have sort of those critical conversations about it. I will say I do know of a lot of particularly older um, scholars yeah. and teachers within the field of ethnic studies in general and, and Chicano studies in particular that mm-hmm. just don't want to let it go. They don't want to hear the critiques because she's their hero, you yeah. know? And so we're sort of contending with that legacy as well, yeah. which is not her right. fault, right? But, mm-hmm. but any good piece needs a retrospective, I guess, to see if it yeah. can be in conversation with the current discourse, which is always rooted in a previous discourse. When I have guests, mm-hmm. scholars on my podcast, we all, I always ask them about this idea of a canon. And I think what I've come to hear from them is that you you can read things that you don't like, but you shouldn't reproduce harm when you're reading those, those like what, what we call once seminal. I know that's like mm-hmm. a reference now that no one's supposed to use, but those those pieces could be loved and critiqued if if they still love it. But mm-hmm. I think I think people do need to realize that there's a a discourse that they have to talk about and be responsible educators. Yes. I think. I've read A Map to the Door of No Return by Dion Brand. <laughs> yeah, um, I love that book. I love that book. It was so great. That was the last book that I read before finishing We Are mm-hmm. Owed. Because I was looking for a quote to 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 introduce the Yanga poems. And I was like, I can't find, I was like, I, I'll know it when I see it, but I can't find it anywhere. And when I read A Map to the Door of No Return, I thought to myself, oh, this is the book that should be assigned instead of Borderlands. Because mm-hmm. I think all of the things that Anzaldua is attempting to do in, in Borderlands, which is sort of writing about one's complicated relationship to a nation, to place, right? To being displaced because of colonialism mm-hmm. and violence. Dion Brand is doing all of those things, but mm-hmm. also is incorporating a critique of nation, is also mm-hmm. incorporating a critique of the legacy of slavery, and is able to sort of talk about um, that sort of diasporic displacement without relying mm-hmm. on a narrative of hybridity or eugenics. She's doing all of those right. things. So I, I really think that book should be more widely assigned than it is. Yes. And and there's so much hope in the book that Dion Brand expresses, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a similar question, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about the poem Mustang, because I consider it like an epic in some sense. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you break that poem up in form and, and structures. I think there are five. So everything now that you told me about um, genealogies and how you're thinking about what you learn, it just... I think it gives me even more excitement to talk about the poems. Yeah. 
So in that poem there, you specifically reference um, particular schools and histories of the school. Mm -hmm. I especially love how you contrast Wikipedia. I think so there was a, a stanza or a part where you called it Wikipedia, and then it's followed by lecture notes, Mexican-American studies, author's room, Austin, Texas, and your description of the seven Mustangs inscription located at the University of Texas at Austin. So in between the notes, facts, and school spirit, I call it school spirit because it seems like it was a cheer, mm -hmm. so I wasn't sure if that was an award that was appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and there seems to be an underlying criticism. So what were your thoughts here in particular, and can you talk a little bit of how you structure the poem? Yeah, and I'm so glad you asked me about this poem because it, it means so much to me and I never get asked about it. So I'm really excited to talk about it. <laughs> so this was an example of when I was talking to you earlier about sort of like doing research and trying to link things that may seem disconnected yeah. to other people. Mm -hmm. This is a really good example of that. Um, so the so Mustang, the poem starts with a scene at a pep rally at, at the high school that I attended in San Antonio. And our school mm -hmm. mascot was the Mustangs. Our colors were blue and white. We had blue t-shirts with a picture of a white Mustang on the front. It said John Jay Mustangs. And we had a lot of like school chants that sort of said that, right? I sort of had this vocabulary for what a Mustang was, but I never thought too deeply about it until I was taking um, a course in Mexican-American studies at UT Austin years later. And the course sort of chronicled the history of the conquest um, of Mexico. I just remember my professor kind of offhand mentioning that horses were brought by the Spaniards during conquest to the Americas. And I was just curious. I happened upon the Wikipedia article for Mustangs. And so the, the second part of the poem is a paragraph that used to be on the Wikipedia page for, the, for Mustangs. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, and so there's a line in that that says, when Europeans reintroduced the horse to the Americas, beginning with the invasion of the conquistadores in the 15th century, some horses escaped and formed feral herds known today as Mustangs. And when I read that description, it reminded me of the way that people talk about maroons, maroon communities. And I was like, okay, this feels like one of those things where when I open a door, 10 more doors open behind it, that I have this image of the Mustang, that I have a personal connection to it from these memories of my high school, learning that it was used as a tool of war. Um, mm -hmm. And so then I was like, okay, let's, let's dive deeper into it. How can I sort of connect these dots? It seemed very connected to me and try to make some sense of it. So then we have my lecture notes for how sort of Texas was colonized. And then by chance, I happened upon, I didn't even know that this was there, but I was going, I was just walking on campus at UT and there is a statue called the Seven Mustangs in one of the corners of campus. And there's an inscription on it. And I stopped to read the inscription and there's what appears in the poem is an erasure of the inscription, but mm -hmm. Stephen F. Austin, the man who's mostly responsible for colonizing Texas, uh, he says that next to God, we owed our victory to the horses, uh, to the mm -hmm. Mustangs. And so, I don't know, I think this poem took on many forms because I couldn't figure out how to combine all of this disparate mm -hmm. information and sort of make one thing. And so I decided I will just present the information. I'll present the information, but I will ground it in place because it feels very rooted in place to me. Mm -hmm. And then whatever people want to make of it, that's what they will make of it. 
I think this poem comes right before I start talking about the history of enslaved Black people in, in Texas and, and Mexico because of mm-hmm. that, that relationship between Mustangs and Maroons, how they're described. Mm-hmm. And I'm still trying to, um, I guess, educate myself on how to talk about poetic forms. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, and I'm always, because I think maybe I'm a very visual person more than I realize when I'm reading. Mm-hmm. A lot of your poems like stretch out in multiple pages and spaces. And I just thought yeah. it's just a very artistic way of reading text and thinking about text. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why um, I call it an epic because I thought, one page had ended it, but it kept going, mm-hmm. you know, in like sagas, it seems. So that's why I call it an epic. I don't know if that's the the proper category. Yeah. That's, I was just very stunned by it. I kept yeah. reading it because I was just trying to wonder what you were doing with the text that made it move so well. And also it took me by surprise. I don't know. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, yes, of course. Yeah. No, that really means a lot to me. Well, I mean, part, one of the things I was thinking was that the sections I thought needed some space to breathe, you know, because I mm-hmm. think getting all the information at once is quite overwhelming. And I really struggle to read academic texts because they're so dense, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my friends make fun of me because they're always sending me nonfiction and I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> I, I learn so much better when it's broken up a bit, you know, mm-hmm. when there's a, li- a little bit of time to digest and to process because mm-hmm. then you can kind of find your place and go back mm-hmm. or go forward as you need to. Yeah, mm-hmm. but thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Yes. I really love that poem. It just seemed like almost like um like a very condensed dissertation. Mm. That's how I felt because it yeah. was like it seemed like there was a very specific time in each mm-hmm. as it moved, you know. Mm-hmm. But to me, it never broke up that time. I just thought of it as mm-hmm. continuous once I reread it multiple, multiple times. Mm-hmm. So I'm very stunned by that poem. Mm-hmm. I just want to let you know because I love that poem so much. Thank you. So, like I told you, I'm still trying to figure out how to ask questions that don't assume that the poet is the the narrator, the Mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. But um, at the end of your collection, there's a poem you title Introduction, and it begins with, I'm Ariana. And it seems to me that you are providing us with background information about you, the writer or speaker. Mm -hmm. Um, Why did you place the introduction near the end and... Is this a w- way to think about autofiction and poetry or? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say you're still sort of trying to find a vocabulary for how to talk about poems because I still feel that way too. You know, like I got an MFA, but before I wrote this, this is not the typical writing style of mine that's in We Are Owed. This is very specific to this project. Everything mm-hmm. else I write outside of this is much more confessional, much more like prosy. Okay. Um and so I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about form too. So I'm right there with you. But with this poem, I will say because I come from like a performance poetry, slam poetry background, the speaker is always me in my poems. That's not the case for a lot of other writers. But for me, when I say I, I mean myself. Okay. <laughs> Actually, this is one of the first poems that I wrote for We Are Owed. I wrote this when I was in undergrad. Um, oh, wow. It changed a little bit, but for the most part, it's the same. I initially had this poem toward the beginning of the manuscript, but one of my old slam coaches, Sam Sachs, suggested that I put it towards the end. He just said that it worked better. And the more I think about it, the more I feel like it does, right? Because there is so much foregrounding of the different historical genealogies that I'm writing through Mm -hmm. that happened before that. 
there's so much history that I'm covering. You know, I'm thinking through mm-hmm. the conquest of Mexico. I'm thinking through how, because that happened first before the land of the U.S. Southwest became mm-hmm. the U.S., you know, like that also had to be colonized by Spaniards first and then by the Americans. Um, I'm thinking about the legacy of slavery in all of these places. And also there are a lot of poems that are about my life growing up in mm-hmm. San Antonio and then visiting Mexico. Like that's a lot to try to cover in, mm-hmm. I think it's less than a hundred pages, the book. And so I kind of tried to just, um, <laughs> That's probably why a poem like Mustang was so condensed. But because I was trying to cover so much, I wanted people to to feel like they had some sort of grounding um, mm-hmm. before getting to a poem like introductions. Like it made sense yeah. to me when I looked at it right. later. Because the first poem was the Borderlands piece. Mm-hmm. So it set the tone. And then, yeah. And no, I think the movement, the way that you described it, it made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Can we talk about the publishing press? Because um, sure. when I reached out to you to ask how could I support your work, mm-hmm. and you said it's not available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So as a writer now, mm-hmm. when you think about the, the digital, how mm-hmm. how were you able to negotiate that with your publisher? You said that they don't work with Amazon at all, right? Yeah, no, they don't work with Amazon. When you and your publisher made that decision, did you hear pushback about that? Like it won't be mm. accessible in the wider digital sphere, and mm, I see. Uh, yeah. Well, the people who run my press are very um, politically principled, and so that was kind of one of their. I can't remember who brought it up first. If I brought it up first, or if the folks that who run Grieveland, Kevin and Brandon, but we were all very clear. Like it's not in our mm-hmm. um, values to work with Amazon. The thing about publishing now, because I mean, you know, in late stage capitalism where everything is owned by the same like five companies or I think it's four now, conglomerates, right? It's not even just that, but when you publish a book, in order for your book to be in bookstores and libraries, they have to go through a distributor. And most Mm -hmm. distributors at this point are either owned by Amazon or Amazon Mm -hmm. is their primary client. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, I say my press doesn't work with Amazon, but they do work with the distributor. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, my book wouldn't be anywhere. You know, you'd mm-hmm. probably just be able to download it as a PDF. You know, I'm sort of doing everything that I can, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to be in touch with with other writers I know who are organizing alternative distribution models. But at this point, it's really, it's almost impossible to have a book that is not in some way either work with a press that is funded by Amazon, which my mm-hmm. press is not, but a lot of big presses are, or even mm-hmm. a lot of independent presses are through the Amazon Literary Partnership. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to, well, I'll say this, if you want to have a book out in the world and you also want to stick to your political values, those things are, mm-hmm. are those things are incompatible. There's not really a way to do it. I'm sort of mm-hmm. making a path as best as I can, but there are a lot mm-hmm. of situations of sort of having to compromise because that's just what the market looks like, you know? Right. Yeah. It's unfortunate and it's something I don't feel good about. Mm-hmm. Because I know there was a, I guess it will be a publishing thread. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think a lot of the pitches on how you would sell a book includes Amazon like how would you partner with Amazon so I, I guess that's more common than I had realized yeah I now mean, currently as a publisher and as a writer so. <laughs> yeah I mean even you know Goodreads 
is owned by Amazon. <laughs> uh-huh. I didn't know that until I, I think yeah. I listened to a podcast and someone said that. Yeah. It's really terrifying, actually, how, how many pots they have their hand in, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I learned about the Amazon Literary Partnership, I was just floored because all of these places that I thought were, you know, sort of beacons of independent presses, journals, mm-hmm. um, writers retreats for writers of color, so many of them are mm-hmm. accepting funding from Amazon at this Amazon. point. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's something I, I am talking about with more people that I know who are trying to get mm-hmm. into publishing just trying to let people yeah. know hey this is what it looks like on the other side you know yeah, yeah. so Ariana mm-hmm. I want to ask you are you working on any projects now currently that you could share I actually am I'm about to finish a zine I don't want to keep doing the same thing with my writing. And I think right now, especially because we're in a pandemic and I haven't been able to do in-person performances and shows, and and those were such a big formative part of my life as a writer and a a poet was to be in community with other artists and be constantly Mm -hmm. collaborating. And so right now I'm trying to think through, okay, what are the different ways that my work can live? And so I'm working on a digital poetry zine about going through a breakup during the pandemic and it has poems that I've been writing and I mean talk about playing with form you know getting to stretch things across pages there's illustrations there's photos all kinds of things there's like manipulated photos and text and so that's going to be released in April and I'm going to be doing a virtual release party with some of my friends talking about the zine and just sort of celebrating it and I can't say too much about this right now but I'm working on an audiobook for We Are Old. Oh, wow. That's big news. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I, was, I had lots of questions, but I guess we'll save it for another time when I can invite you back on. Thank you so much for your time, Ariana, and thank you for this really lovely conversation. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, Anna. Please take care. This has been wonderful. You, please take care. Yes, you too. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnaAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.